Thank you for downloading this podcast from Pardes, North America. This episode of Pardes from Jerusalem features Rabbi Dr. Mish Hammer Kasoy on Parashat Tazria. This episode is sponsored by Pardes alum Graham Hoffman in honor of his parents, teachers, and role models, Rabbi Richard and Rebetzin Deborah Zussman. And now, here is Rabbi Dr. Mish Hammer Kasoy. Thank you so much to my friend, colleague, and former student, Graham Hoffman, for sponsoring this podcast in honor of his parents, teachers, and role models, Rabbi Richard and Rebetzin Deborah Sussman. Your sponsorship means a lot to me personally, and I have no doubt that your parents are incredibly proud of you. It's weeks like this that I am so grateful to be a Torah teacher. Sharon Olds, Pulitzer Prize-winning poet, tells a story from early in her career when she submitted a poem to a respected literary journal. They declined to publish it and advised her, if you want to write about being a mother, you should submit to Home and Garden. We are a literary journal. Is there any finer literature than the Torah? And yet, millennium before the journal was established, the Torah felt it important to include wisdom about childbearing, as well as even more gruesome topics such as leprosy and bodily excretions. During Jewish leap years, and there are seven in a 19-year cycle, Parshat Chodesh, the special maftir portion that we're going to read on the Shabbat before Rosh Chodesh Nisan, generally coincides with this week's Parsha, Tazriah. At first glance, these two parshiot seem to have little in common. Parshat Tesaria being one of the most technical and driest parshiot in the Torah, dealing first with childbirth and then with the um, intricate and no longer applicable laws of Tzarat. Parshat Achodesh, on the other hand, describes the preparation for and the excitement of the Exodus, one of the most powerful, relevant, and transcendent events in all of Jewish history. In the words of the Kabbalists, late Atar Panui Minei, there is no place that is bereft of God. Whether we're talking about bodily functions or miracles, God is there. But what is the connection between these two parshiot? Why put them together, not only in the same book, but in the very same Shabbos? If you'll stick with me and my motherly perspective, I'm going to try to argue for a connection. Allow me to begin with the end. The second scroll we'll be reading. Parsha Tachodesh, Exodus 12, 1 through 20. This setting is, the setting is the depths of slavery. We are nine plagues in, nine attempts to convince Paro to release the Jews, ending again with Paro dismissing Moshe, and this time threatening that if he ever sees his face again, Moshe's dead. We know how the story ends, but put yourself for a minute in Moshe's shoes. Although, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again is a very wise mantra. It's tough to imagine what it must have been like to be in that situation, being turned away a ninth time. Having failed a test three times, it's hard to muster the strength to attempt it even a fourth to shake the sense that these repeated attempts are futile and unproductive. I hear Hashem encouraging Moshe that he will succeed, but keeping the faith would have been challenging. If the first nine didn't work, why would he believe that the 10th is going to do the trick? I'm reminded of my first labor and delivery, something that almost always ends within a few short days. When the first night, 
the on uh, the first night, the contractions were in steady five-minute increments, and I'd been filled with anticipation and excitement, only to find them dropping off and slowing at daybreak. Once 24 hours had passed, I had lost two full nights sleep, but the contractions were still five minutes apart. Yoni was politely finding ways to help stave off the exhaustion and look helpful. I was despondent. All of my strength was expended, and nothing would be left for when the really intense labor gets started. No, no, Yoni assured me. I had progressed so much since last night. The contractions were much more intense. But from where I was suffering, I could perceive no good end in sight. It's exactly at that moment that God chimes in with two commands that are one. Verses 1 through 13, more than two weeks before any real salvation is actually promised, from the depths of the despondency, God commands Moshe and the people of Israel, get ready for the Paschal sacrifice, declare the new month, month, separate the lamb, and hurry up and wait. This will be an event to be remembered forever. And then immediately in verses 14 to seamlessly in verses 14 to 20th, we are commanded, remember this event forever. This one that hasn't even happened yet. Reenact it every year. This is going to be your founding myth. The thin line between doing and remembering is essential. As the Mishnah Psachim Perektet Mishnah declares, there is precious little difference between what they call Pesach Mitzrayim and Pesach Lederot, the sacrifice offered in Egypt and that which is to be offered every year in commemoration. Listen to the commandment while still in Egypt. The process of remembering almost preceded the event itself. Reading it today, we're not just remembering, we're actually practically participating in the sacrifice as it was in Egypt. Chayav Adam that a person is obligated to see themselves as though they personally participated in the Exodus is built structurally into the verses here. The tremendous significance of this act of creation of memory is illuminated by Yosef Chaim Yerushalmi in his seminal book Zahor, and I quote. We are periodically aware that memory is among those fragile and capricious of our faculties. Yet the Hebrew Bible seems to have no hesitations in commanding memory. Its injunctions to remember are unconditional. And even when not commanded, remembrance is always pivotal. Altogether, the verb Zahar appears in its various declensions in the Bible no less than 169 times usually with either Israel or God as the subject, for memory is incumbent on both. The verb is complemented by its averse, forgetting. As Israel is enjoined to remember, so it is adjured not to forget. Both imperatives have resounded with enduring effect among the Jews since biblical times. Indeed, in trying to understand the survival of a people that has spent most of its life in global dispersion, I would submit that the history of its memory, largely neglected and yet to be written, may prove to be of some consequence. He continues, only in Israel and nowhere else is the injunction to remember felt as a religious imperative to an entire people. The secret to our survival, explains Yerushalmi, 
is in our remarkable commitment to memory and our belief that in that that memory is embedded tremendous meaning. In fact, scholars have noted that Zahor as a word is a much wider range than remember in English, since in Hebrew, remember also includes to act. For this reason, Parsha Dachodesh implores us to remember even before we experience the redemption, and for those of us who already know the end, to return to that moment of despondence and experience the redemption again as though we are being surprised by the majestic ending again and again. With this in mind, let's turn to Parsha Tezria. Perhaps I overstated the feminist dig in my opening statement, because our Parsha opens not only with... Although our Parsha does open with childbirth, um, uh, and even uterine bleeding, it comes from a very certain perspective. Speak to the... I'll read it first in Hebrew. Deber el b'nei Israel le'mor ishaki tizriya v'yelda zachar v'tama shivat yamim k'mein nidatota titma b'yom ha'shmini yimol basar olato v'shloshim yom u'shloshet yamim teshev b'dmeitara b'chol kodesh lo tiga el mikdash lo tavo ad melot yameitara im nikevate led v'tama shvu ayim k'nidata v'shishim yom v'shishim yamim teshev al dmeitara u'blima Uh, using the JPS translation. Speak to the Israelite people thus. When a woman at childbirth bears a male, she shall be unclean seven days. She shall be unclean as the time of her menstrual infirmity. On the eighth day, the flesh of the foreskin shall, foreskin shall be circumcised. She shall remain in a state of blood fury blood purification for 33 days. She shall not, not touch any consecrated thing, nor enter the sanctuary until her period of purification is completed. If she bears a female, she shall be unclean two weeks as her menstruation, and she shall remain in a state of blood pur- purification for 66 days. On the completion of her period of pur- purification, for either son or daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb in its first year for a birth offering and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. He shall offer it before the Lord and make expiation on her behalf. She shall then be clean from her flow of blood. Such are the rituals concerning the woman who bears a child, male or female. Granted, this passage doesn't exactly read like feminist Torah. First, why should a birthing woman bring a sinner offering? A Thanksgiving offering would make sense to me, but a sin offering? Second, why should the period of pure and impure bleeding be double for a girl over a boy? Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, the famous rabbi who called women lightheaded and fled the pleasure of this world um, of this worldly culture and to dwell in a cave for thirteen years, offers a suggestion. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai was asked by his disciples, 
This is uh, the Gemara Nida 31b. Why did the Torah ordain that a woman after childbirth should bring a sin offering? He replied, when she kneels in labor, she swears impetuously that she will have no intercourse with her husband. The Torah, therefore, ordained that she should bring a sacrifice. It's easy to read insult in those words. Ah, those lightheaded women, the biblical curts, um, Dibanim is too much for those women to bear. He assumes that in the travails of childbirth, women will regret ever having conceived and commit to never doing it again, perhaps even swearing on God's name. The pain of that moment is so overwhelming and all-encompassing that it eclipses all else. The pain causes her to forget the aspirations and promise that brought her to this moment and all that she stands to gain from one or two days of suffering. The students then ask a second question. Why did the Torah ordain that in the case of a male, the woman is clean after seven days and that of a female after 14 days? On the birth of, he answers, on the birth of a male with whom all rejoice, she regrets her oath after seven days. But on the birth of a female about whom everybody is upset, she regrets her oath only after 14 days. A second bout of forgetfulness follows quickly after the first one. Just as quickly as she forgot the miracles of pregnancy and the family and the family while she was in labor, so too she promptly forgets entirely about the pain of labor. What else may she, um, what may have been even a near death experience? She regrets. Um, she regrets her vow, and has is forgotten about it completely. Of course. If you have a boy, the rewards are so fast and furious that it only takes a week to forget. But if you've got a girl, the joy's half throttle, and so it takes two weeks. Once she's filled with regret for her impetuous vow, she brings a sin offering and Hashem to let's bygones be bygones. In the Gemara, Rav Yosef immediately objects. The facts don't add up. A sin offering is to be is to be brought for inadvertent sins, and this would have been a deliberate sin. And furthermore, rather than bringing a sacrifice, the best way to treat the problem of an oath is to annul it. And as Rashi Sims suggests, you simply have to regret it and go to a sage. The Gemara makes no attempt to resolve Rav Yosef's objection, and it would seem that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai's reading is really not the simple reading. There are multiple cases in our parsha alone in which the sin offerings are offered in a process of purifying, chitui, and not necessarily in response to a clear sin, chatat. What, however, is gained by Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai's drash? I'd like to suggest that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai's drash is not just intended to insult women's lightheadedness, rather to sing the praises of forgetfulness. Studies show that while, Sh- while Shimon Ben Yochai's characterization of the birthing experience may be an exaggeration. Forgetfulness sometimes does play a significant role. Recent studies show that a full one-third of women remember the birthing experience very differently after a year or five years than they do immediately after the experience or even two months later. Scientists call this the halo effect. Um, Because the experience ends well, the intensity of the birthing experience is viewed and translated through through that lens and literally reconceived as less painful than it actually was at the time. 
perhaps even more significantly, is those women who don't forget about the painful birth. Women with very negative birthing experiences can remember that birth is an even big trauma, bigger trauma in a year or in five. And in such a case, um, and this is a, a very significant minority of women, um, they, those women who are not blessed with forgetting are likely to have the memory of that trauma impact their children's upbringing or, uh, or to conceive it or to uh, get in the way of their um, willingness to conceive another child for years to come. Similarly, people who suffer from PTSD have a similar experience. The inability to let go of and simply forget terrible things that happened in the past in order to embrace new joys in life. So Rashbi is not making fun of women for being lightheaded, but simply naming a blessing, the blessing of forgetfulness, which should be universally adopted. Holding on to the negative risks or myopically focusing on these dilemmas might be truthful, but they focus on the wrong facts and experience experiences and prevent living life in the future um, in the best way possible. So if Parshat Achodesh teaches us that memory is a first order imperative, Parshat Tazriya teaches us that forgetting is also a blessing. Yosef Chaim Yerushalmi adds a postscript to his book called Reflections of Forgetting. There he tells of two books by the great Russian psychologist Alexander Romanovich Luria, The Man with the Shattered World, The History of a Brain Wound, and the other, The Mind of a, of a Pneumonist, a little book about a vast memory. And I quote, The man whose world was shattered has been shot in the head um, during World War II at the Battle of Smolensk. Though he survived, he had lost most of his memory, his very capacity to remember. By sheer force of will and with incredible effort, he began to write a few sentences each day over a period of some um, 25 years. Slowly, painfully, he was able to recover fragments of his past and even to arrange them in some meaningful order. But while this activity gave him a tenuous link to life, Normal living was denied him. At one point, he cries out, I remember nothing, absolutely nothing, just separate bits of information, but that's all. I have no real knowledge of any subject. My past has just been wiped out. The pneumonist, on the other hand, was endowed since childhood with a memory so prodigious that he astounded the psychologists who studied him and the audiences that came to see him perform on stage. The tragedy of the man wounded at Smolensk does not surprise us. We're accustomed to regard amnesia as pathological. Yet the phenomenon of the men of the pneumolid, the <laughs> the pneumonist was no less no less pathological. If brain damaged men could not remember, the pneuma, the pneumonist could not forget. It was so it was. So, and so it was even difficult for him to read, not because like the man of Smolensk, he had forgotten the meaning of words, but because each time he tried to read other words and images surged up from the past and strangled the words in the text he held in his hand. 
Nietzsche, too, proclaims the crisis of historicism in terms of an illness and declares, we must know the right time to forget as well as the right time to remember and instinctively see when it is necessary to feel historically and when unhistorically. This is the point that the reader is asked to consider, that the unhistorical and that the historical are equally necessary to the health of the individual, a community, and a system of culture. In deference to Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, I personally am a great fan of remembering my own pregnancy and deliveries. And ironically, I learned so much about the exodus from my personal experience. I had always been so befuddled by the complaints of the Israelites in the desert. How could God be so imminent, bestowing miracles on them with manna and Miriam's well and the pillar of cloud and fire at every moment? And yet, the Israelites complained so incessantly, constantly. Being pregnant certainly clarified this for me. There is nothing more miraculous than having a child grow inside my womb. And I was constantly aware of the wonders. And yet the complaints were irresistible and real. But I learn a very important lesson from Barishimon Bar Yochai. Remembering and forgetting are both inevitable. And there are also choices. The commandment, Zahor, implores us to remember and to act in response to the faithful redemption of an all-merciful God. There will, along the way, inevitably be pain, be pain. And if that pain moves us forward, more power to it. But if it holds us back in fear of devoting ourselves to our mission, let us bring a sin offering to purify ourselves from that memory and forget about it. A narrative is a construct, and we must take care to make it a holy and a healthy one. In the words of Yerushalmi, the biblical appeal to remember has thus has little to do with curiosity about the past. Israel is told only that it must be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Nowhere is it suggested that it become a nation of historians. Over the course of the next month of Jewish time, our nation will pass through the narrow birth control I'm sorry. <laughs> wow. We'll pass through the narrow birth canal called the Reed Sea and become a new people. May we be blessed to construct a narrative for ourselves that is healthy, productive, and meaningful. To let go of pains that hold us back and embrace redemption that gives us hope. And above all, that empowers and has inspires us to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. May you have a meaningful period of preparation and memory construction and Shabbat Shalom. Thank you again for downloading this podcast, a production of Pardes North America. If you liked what you just heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on Spotify for the latest episode of Pardes from Jerusalem. Tune in next week as Rabbi Elchanan Miller discusses Parashat Metzorah. Thanks for listening.